let, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the transformation that takes place in our hearts because of your grace, that we are made to be kind people and uh, tender-hearted and other-centered. We thank you that that all takes place because we are a reflection of you, and that defines you. Um, we thank you for these stories of Jesus, these true historical accounts of his life and how they reveal to us what our God is like. I pray that you would shape us as we study your word together. I thank you for everybody in this room. We pray for those who are normally here and aren't with us today. God, be with them wherever they are. And um, we ask that the name of Jesus would be magnified in our hour together. Amen. Amen. Come on in. Hi, Nanita. All right, so we are in Mark chapter 6. Hey, I apologize, uh, I guess, for some miscommunication about adult Sunday school while I was gone. Um, I don't usually communicate outside of just, like, what happens in here because I just kind of never know who is participating with adult Sunday school. But uh, I do encourage you. Um, Corey was reminding me that there is a adult Sunday school group on the app. So I do encourage you to join that group, and that way, um, even if I forget to communicate something, you know, Corey has offered, or other people will will be they will be willing to remind you, since I'm terrible at communicating these things. So, and on that note, we will not meet next week. I'm sorry for the intermittent schedule, but because we will be on our church camping trip, there's no there's nothing happening here next Sunday. So. For church, we'll have a pre-recorded teaching that will become available on YouTube at about 9.50 on Sunday morning. But there's no service, no adult Sunday school. There's nothing happening on campus next Sunday, okay? So we will be back together in two weeks. Any questions on that? All right. You can move the desks if you want to, like, if you don't want to get a cramp in your neck, Monica, from sitting like that. You can slide the desk, but... Okay. Just be sure to slide it back. Yes, just be sure to slide it back. Okay, Mark chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 14. So this is a little bit of what I would call like an excursus. Um, you have here Jesus at the end of, uh, or not at the end, but in chapter 6, verse 7, Jesus begins sending out the 12 apostles. And that goes through verse 13. And then you have kind of this weird break of verses 14 uh, through 29. And then you're going to see in verse 30 the apostles coming back to Jesus to kind of report on their experience. So this is like a big parenthesis, uh, verses 14 through 29. Well, let me read this for us. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised uh, from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Okay, so if you were watching a movie, this would be like when the screen starts to like, flashback. So now we're going to hear about how, what, what Herod did. Verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths 
and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Gruesome. Okay, so Jesus has frequently told people after he's done miracles, what? Don't talk about it. Don't say anything, right? And then verse 14, King Herod hears of it, right? So in spite of the fact that Jesus is trying to keep the, the news about him kind of tamped down, it is not effective. The stories have circulated around the kingdom, made it all the way up into the throne room of the king himself. Okay? And uh, this causes people to engage in all kinds of speculation. Who is this man that is doing these incredible, mighty works? And it's interesting that some people uh, say in verse 14 that this is that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Um, and the reason why I find that interesting, well, wh why do you think I might find that interesting? Anybody willing to take a crack at it? This is what Herod thinks. Do you think that Herod believed that Jesus rose from the dead when he heard that story? I doubt it. So it's kind of an interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Would these same people who believe that John has been raised from the dead go on to believe that Jesus himself was raised from the dead? I doubt it. I think these are people that are probably going to end up skeptical of the resurrection in total. And it just kind of... I think highlights that it's very interesting what people believe and what they don't believe, isn't it? There's a very uh, popular uh, belief right now in sort of science-related higher levels of intellectualism that, that claims that we live in a simulation. Does anybody know what that means? Yeah, that we live in the matrix. That basically some super intelligence, super advanced civilization that came before us in the history of the cosmos has created this massive computer program and we're all plugged into it and nothing that we experience is real. It's all just a simulation. Which like, why would you believe that and not just believe that like there is a God who made everything, right? Like which of those two sounds more absurd? I think the simulation proposal sounds way more absurd. It's mind manipulation. Yeah, it is. And, and it's just uh, what, what people don't want to do is believe the truth. Yeah. Right? John chapter 1 kind of talks about this, how man loves the darkness and he loves to suppress the truth. Romans chapter 1 talks about that as well. Um, or how about this one? Uh, you can change your gender, but you can't change your race. Like really, what's the difference? Right? I mean... People believe that you can change your gender, but they believe that if you were to claim you changed your race, that that's like deeply insulting. All right, so this is just a phenomenon that shows that people throughout all of history have believed some very strange things contrary to believing some very reasonable things. Okay, others think he's Elijah. Why would they think he's Elijah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in 2 Kings chapter 2, we're told the story of Elijah, who he didn't die. Uh, instead, he was taken up into heaven on these angelic chariots of fire. And so it's kind of reasonable to think that maybe God is doing a thing, and so Elijah has returned. Are you going to touch John chapter, John, John chapter 1? I, I was not going to go further into it, but do you want to mention something about John chapter 1? <laughs> it talks about... Uh, when the Pharisees, when John's out there in the wilderness, yeah, and the Pharisees come out and ask him who he is, yeah, men talk about it. All right, so he says, uh, uh, "Now this testimony of John, one of Jews sent priests and Levites, uh, Levites, Levites from Jerusalem, asked him, who are you?" He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, "I am not the Christ." And they asked him, "What then? Are you Elijah?" He says, "I am not. Are you the prophet?" No. Then uh, who are you? that you may give an answer to those who sent us. Uh, what do you say about yourself? Uh, 
he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Eventually, uh, he goes back in John 3.30, after he's, he says, he, Christ, must increase, and I, John, must decrease. Yeah. And this is the decrease right here. Yeah. He's, he's, yet God took him up at the proper time, and this is where he decreases. Yeah. Amen. And uh, John himself never claimed to be anything other no. than a prophet preparing the way, right? And, um, and he, he, yeah, he was very quick to admit his own lowliness, that he was not something great, but he was just the foreshadowing of something coming that was great, right? Well, he said that John, behold the Lamb of God. Yep. Come to the yeah. Lord. So that's twice. Yeah, amen. <coughs> um, and uh, and I mean this is this is kind of not surprising that like there would be the Pharisees asking John these questions only because they knew that before the Messiah came that there would be some kind of prophet preparing the way, right? Okay, but uh, I, they just weren't anticipating the uh, the Savior himself, the Messiah himself, um, and obviously Herod would be concerned about this because most Jews thought. I shouldn't even say most Jews. I mean, I, I, I could probably go so far as to say that the predominant view among Jews waiting for the Messiah was that he would be like King David. He would come and he would raise up an army. He would overthrow kings and authorities. He would cast Rome out of the promised land and he would establish a Davidic kingdom. Um, and so Jesus is doing none of the things that anticipate that outcome, right? He's like, He's not mighty. He doesn't have a sword. He's basically homeless. He's penniless. You know, he's, he's not raising up armies. He's gathering fishermen. Um, so quite a disappointment. Um, okay, but they thought maybe he was Elijah because Elijah never died. Others think that he's just maybe a, a, a different kind of prophet in line with the Old Testament prophets. Um, and we know from Mark's account thus far that Jesus is something far greater than a prophet. Uh, the things that he has done, even at this point in Mark's gospel, are a step above and beyond what the prophets did. Things like forgiving sins. Things like raising the dead. Uh, I mean, there were some instances of like raising the dead in the Old Testament, but nothing like... Um, good morning. Good morning. Nothing like uh, what Jesus is engaging in. In particular, you know, making himself equal with God by forgiving sins. Uh... Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, I think is a verse that, that Christians should know, particularly if you find yourself engaging with um, Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, because they don't believe that Jesus is a unique aspect of the Trinity. They don't believe that he is God. They think that he is uh, a God. And uh, Hebrews chapter 1 shows that Jesus is actually kind of equal with God. And there's lots of places we could go with this, but Jesus is more than a prophet is what I'm getting at. And Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the point is, Jesus is not a created being. He's not like the angels. The universe, all, all material things in creation, even all spiritual things in creation, have been made through him, through his power. He sustains them. He's greater than the prophets. So this is a, a bold statement about Jesus being equal with God. Another great place for that is Colossians chapter 1, right? Um, let me just double check that because sometimes I get confused. Yeah, I'm, t I'm thinking of Colossians 3, but it is Colossians 1, where uh, we are told that Jesus... Um, hang on one second, I'm sorry. Um, 
Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So between Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, we've got a really rich Christology. That's where we develop our theology of Jesus. Who is he? I mean, not only there. Obviously, the Gospels themselves give us that too, but those are powerful passages. Any questions about that? The point is, Jesus is not some prophet. He is, in actuality, the Son of God. Okay, and um, so here's uh, Herod believing that Jesus is John raised from the dead. And uh, again, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think there's any historical evidence for, for believing that Herod himself became a Christian. So here he is willing to believe that John was raised from the dead, but when Jesus actually does rise from the dead, Herod does not believe that. Okay? Um, and this shouldn't surprise us at all because uh, actually Jesus warns us in Luke chapter 16, uh, beginning in verse 20 with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that people won't believe in the resurrection. So maybe you know this. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that it's a parable. It's a story that Jesus tells. It's debated whether it's historical or a parable. The point is Jesus tells this story about this rich man and a, and a poor man who lives outside of his door named Lazarus. And Lazarus and the rich man both die. And Lazarus, the poor man, ends up in essentially heaven while um, the rich man ends up in hell. And at one point, the rich man says, well, I just didn't understand these things. And I have several brothers. Jesus, if you, or Abraham, because he's talking to Abraham in heaven. Abraham, if you let me be resurrected and go back. Sorry, everyone. We locked, we need to lock this one down and go to the other one. Okay. Sorry. Let everyone. me just finish this story and we'll yep. be out of here in like one second. So he says to the, um, uh, the, the rich man says, if I could rise from the dead and go warn my brothers, then they would believe. And Abraham, who's kind of representing Jesus in this story, says, even if someone were to rise from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Okay. So Jesus himself warns us that the resurrection is going to be something that people are not eager to believe. Okay. So uh, let me actually, Anthony, I'm going to steal you. Moshe, you want to give me a hand too? Pass these out to people. So I handed one of these out to you last week. Uh, or the last time we met, we didn't get to it. So if you, um, <laughs> the, the, the use of the name Herod in the New Testament is a little confusing because he shows up first in uh, like Matthew and Luke in the Christmas story, if you will. Uh, he's killing the babies uh, around the birth of Jesus. And, and then you've got him here um, engaged with Jesus and then you've got him in Acts dying uh, but actually those are three different Herods <laughs> so uh, so I, I hope that this handout will kind of help help a little bit so let me touch on Herod for a minute okay the Herod that we are engaging with here in Mark's gospel is actually Herod Antipas so you'll see him right here the son of Malthus Okay, Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, he is the one who shows up in Matthew's gospel killing the babies in, uh, in the Bethlehem area. Okay, Herod the Great. So at the top, he's the, and actually this gives you the references for them. Right, so you can see he's there in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Um, Herod the Great was actually an Idumean, which means he came from a region southeast of Judea, um, actually closer to like Edom. And he, he like technically wasn't of royal blood, but he was a, a pretty crafty politician. And he managed to kind of schmooze the, the Romans so much so that they made him governor of the region and essentially king. So... He's an Edomite also. Yeah, Idumea is not a Jew. Not a Jew, right? Idumea is kind of the Greek word for Edom. Um, so you're right, he is an Edomite, um, which, like, they have some connection to the Jews, but not, um, you know, not officially Jewish. But he more or less 
saw himself as a Jew because he was governor of the region and wanted to appease the Jews. Um, but technically, he's not a Jew. You're right. Thank you, Paul. And uh, after he died, his kingdom was divided into four. It was split between his four kids. Okay. Um, and you can actually see them on sort of the right part. You've got Herod Philip I, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, and then Herod Philip II. Obviously, this man was a narcissist because all of his children are named Herod. I'm, I'm sort of kidding. Um, Herod Antipas is the one that we're dealing with in this story, okay? And Antipas, uh, quite literally in Greek, you are looking at the word antipas. Anti is the Greek preposition that means kind of before or instead of or in behalf of. And pas, we think, is a is like a contraction of patras. So this is basically a fancy way of saying junior. He's Herod Jr., okay? Antipas, meaning he looks like his father. Okay, so Antipas was born in 25 BC to Herod's sixth, sixth wife, Malthus. You've only got four of his wives here. Um, and uh, obviously he had many, you know, brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. Um, Herod the Great died in 4 BC and again divided his kingdom between these four kids, Herod Philip I, Herod Antipas, Archelaus, and Herod Philip II. So Herod Antipas is the one who rules the area of Judea. Okay, so that's who we're dealing with here. Um, Antipas ruled as what, what we call a tetrarch. So tetra meaning four, arc meaning like authority or ruler. So that's where you get these four kingdoms from, his four kids being split up like this. And Antipas had a first wife. Her name was uh, Aretas. She was, um, I'm sorry, the daughter of Aretas, who was the king of Arabia. But he ended up taking a trip to Rome with his brother Archelaus. And, uh, I'm sorry, his brother uh, Herod Philip I, forgive me. And he fell in love with Herod Philip's wife, who was Herodias. Okay? And you can see the interbreeding here that's typical in royal families. Whereas Herodias, Herodias is actually Herod Antipas's half sister's daughter. Or half-brother's daughter. Um, yeah, Aristobulus. See that? Are you tracking with me? This is kind of confusing. So Aristobulus is Herod Antipas's half-brother. Aristobulus has a daughter named Herodias. Herod Antipas marries Herodias, even though Herodias was actually the wife of Herod Philip I. Still the wife? Still the wife? Or was he dead? Still the wife. Still the wife. Yeah. Um, so you got like a soap opera going on here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they divorced their spouses. Uh, Herod Antipas divorced his spouse and Herodias divorced her spouse and they got married. And um, eventually they were essentially ousted by Herod Agrippa I, who you see kind of on the far left side. And Herod Agrippa I is the one who dies in Acts chapter 12, essentially says, I'm a god, and God kills him, and the Bible says he was eaten by worms. Okay? So, super confusing. And Herod is a sellout. I mean, he, he seeks to appease the Jews, and I think he sees himself as, like, sort of ethnically Jewish, even though he's not technically Jewish. But he's really committed to Rome because Rome is who keeps him in power. Yeah, he's uh, he was trying to appease them, but he's also probably one of the meanest guys as far as he didn't put up with anything. Yeah, he, yeah, all of these guys. Did. <coughs> yeah, yeah. He, he would put down anything at any time. Absolutely, yeah. totally. Just like a not a nice guy. Not a nice guy. Okay. All right. So here we get this, This uh, sorry, what did you say, Nanita? Just like our politics today. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And, and actually, this is about as political as the Bible gets right here, outside of like Romans 13 that essentially just says, obey the political authorities because God is sovereign over all of these things, right? Um, 
So between verses 16 and 17, we get a little bit of a flashback, which I think this is just really cool storytelling. Like the Bible, I know we, we can be kind of like, think it's kind of boring because it's kind of a big book and it's got these genealogies and there's some stuff we don't understand. But man, when you read the narrative parts of the Bible in particular, that's the storytelling parts, the historical parts, it is just really good storytelling. I'm reading in the Old Testament right now around the life of David. I, actually, he just died and now I'm reading about Solomon. But there's this chapter in there that talks about David's mighty men. And it just gives these little hints about these guys. And I'm like, man, somebody needs to like write a novel about the exploits of these David's mighty men. Even if it's fiction, you know, kind of loosely tying to it because it would just be awesome. Anyway, the point is, you know, good movies often in their storytelling will 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 give you the backstory kind of later. And it's just really cool that the Bible does this. This is some incredible narrative. Okay, so we've got this uh, verse 18 here where we are told that um, John, Herod is upset. Well, Herod and Herodias, right? Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, verse 17. They, they, they don't like John because John keeps saying, verse 18, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So John is quite bold. This is typically the problem of prophets is they're very disliked because they say things like this. This is not lawful for you to have this relationship. Uh, you need to repent of this. And Herodias in particular doesn't like John. Herod is a little bit, Herod Antipas is a little bit enamored with him, curious about him. Uh, there's kind of a cool other like historical story here that I want to tell. Is anybody familiar with the name Hugh Latimer? I may have told this story before in a sermon, and so if it sounds vaguely familiar, that's okay. It's worth retelling. So Hugh Latimer was a um, he was a, a, a Protestant uh, a preacher around the time of King Henry VIII. So sort of during the Re the Reformation, this would be like I think late 1500s, early 1600s. I don't know the date exactly. But Hugh Latimer was invited to preach to King Henry VIII in his royal court. And so Hugh Latimer shows up. And does anybody know anything about King Henry VIII? How many wives he had? He had like six wives. And he, he left the Catholic Church and became a Protestant because he wanted to divorce one of his wives. I think it was, shoot, why can't I think of her name? Catherine? Catherine? Yeah, Catherine, right? To, to marry Anne Boleyn. Yeah, to marry Anne Boleyn. That's right. He wanted to divorce Catherine to marry Anne Boleyn, and the Pope wouldn't let him. So he left the Catholic Church and started the Church of England so that he could divorce her and get married to Anne Boleyn, okay? And then he had Catherine beheaded, and I think Anne Boleyn was later beheaded because he fell in love with some other lady. He was a, he was a total shyster. Anyway, and he was known for, for doing whatever he wanted. Like, he's the king, so he just does what he wants, right? So he has Hugh Latimer come and preach. And you know what passage of scripture, what verse Hugh Latimer preaches on? This one. This one, right? This, and this is after he's divorced uh, Catherine and married Anne Boleyn. And so Hugh Latimer gets up there and he preaches on uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 18. It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It's, actually, he preaches off a different verse that says it's not lawful for you to have that woman. Okay, I forget which gospel it's from. And the king is furious, <laughs> furious at Hugh Latimer. And so he sends one of his uh, royal court delegates to Latimer later that week. And he says, you're going to come back next Sunday and you're going to preach a sermon and you're going to recant everything that you said about me and my relationship to this woman. And Hugh Latimer's like, I, I would love the opportunity to come back and preach again. Next Sunday rolls around. And he gets up in the pulpit in front of the king and he says, Hugh Latimer, he begins a sermon like this, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you stand today? You stand before King Henry VIII, sovereign over all of England, his majesty on high, the man before whom other men bow. And then he goes, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you stand today? Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, Savior of all men, King of kings and Lord of lords, creator of all the universe before whom all men, even kings, will bow. And he goes on and preaches the exact same sermon he preached the week before. I love it. 
And the king actually, even though he was super mad at him, basically said, I'm impressed at your courage. I'm going to let you live. Yeah, I think that he just got exiled somewhere in France or something. I don't know. He, he may have been exiled. At some point, he ends up actually back in Oxford. And um, you can go to Oxford. Hugh Latimer and I can't remember the other guy's name. But he was eventually burned at the stake by the, um, by the Catholics right there in a courtyard in Oxford. And I love this too because he, he, they're tied to the stake, you know, and he says to his friend as, he's, as they're about to light the pyre, he says, take heart, my friend. I, I don't know why I can't think of the guy's name. He says, take heart, my friend. Today, we light a candle in the midst of England, the likes of which will burn for generations. And then they burned him to death. And again, you can go to Oxford and you can see the, the place where he was burned at the stake. So just a man with some serious courage. I love that story. And John himself has that same kind of courage. Unfortunately for John, it ends with his beheading. Okay. Uh, Herod does recognize that Jesus or that John is a righteous man. You can see that in verse 20 there. Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. Um, and so he didn't really actually want to execute John. Even though they, he was the, the Herods and the Edomites were not, were not essentially Jewish, they were still sensitive to Jewish laws and teachings, were they? I think it's more or that, um, yeah, so we, we actually touched on this a little bit as we've gone through Genesis. Edom is Esau. So Edom is Jacob's brother Esau, and Esau ended up in Edom, which is southeast of the Dead Sea. Okay, Edom means red, and Esau had red hair. And, and so there's some just like shared history here. But the Edomites were not Yahweh worshipers. Okay, but the Jews were notorious for being almost unconquerable. Um, you know, the, the Romans were very syncretistic. They were happy to kind of let you worship your own gods and keep your own culture so long as you paid your taxes and you didn't cause problems. So they would put a regional governor over you who was responsible to Rome to kind of rule the region. And as long as you kept in line, then they were fine with it. The Jews were problematic because they were monotheists. And Caesar called himself a god. And so they would revolt and cause all kinds of problems. So Herod is content to quell the revolts using violence. But he also is eager to kind of appease the Jews in any way he can to keep them from causing problems. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Pilate, and Pilate and Herod were, were not friends. And they, so he had a whole bunch of stuff going on yeah. continually. So, yeah. And that's Pilate's problem. That's why Pilate ends up having Jesus crucified is because he's, he's about to have a riot on his hands and he knows that if, if there's a riot, he's going to be in big, big trouble. So, um, yeah, if you're interested in reading more about this, you could read some of like Josephus. Um, the, Ma the Maccabean... <laughs> You could read about like the Maccabean revolts. There's another name for it that I can't think of. You can read about what's called the intertestamental period, but we can move on. Um, so Herod recognizes John as a righteous man. I've mentioned this a couple times in class. There are some things that are self-evident. There are some things that are self-evident. They don't require an explanation. And I think righteousness is self-evident, isn't it? Holiness is self-evident. But righteousness and holiness always draw the ire of those who are evil. It draws the anger, the hatred, the reproach of those who are evil. You know, there's a really interesting phenomenon going on in our culture where you have these hospitals. I don't know if anybody's following this. Maybe this is too intense, but I'm going to do it anyway. You have these hospitals that are mutilating children in, in the name of gender ideology. 
and they have it up on their websites. They have videos posted publicly. And then conservative people come along and they say, look at these videos, and they get some airtime. They begin to be made available to a wider audience. And you know what the hospitals do almost immediately? They take it all down, right? If it's good, and if it's righteous, and if it is what's beneficial, why would you hide it, right? The same is with Christianity. If we're like crazy and like this book doesn't mean anything, why you like why to silence that? Like you yeah. know, what I mean? like yeah, absolutely. Why do you have to try so hard to silence something that you think is untrue? Right. Yeah. It happened with Vanderbilt. Just just not Yep. Yep. That that's the one. The the most the latest one this week. They just deleted their entire website yeah. that talks about that. Yeah. Okay, I mentioned this is about as involved in politics as the Bible gets. Um, and I think that an application here is that whatever the kingdoms of men are doing, they can't do anything to disrupt the plan of God. Yep. So I really love Psalm 2, and I think I've mentioned it in here before, but it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, saying, Let us burst his bonds from, apart, from upon us and thrust his yoke from off of us? God sits in the heavens and he laughs at them. Mm -hmm. He holds them in derision, right? So that, that's the Grady paraphrase. That's not word for word the verse, but pretty darn close. But the point is the kingdom of God is a threat to political movements, but political movements are not a threat to the kingdom of God. That's why I, that's why I don't mind uh, debating issues like gender and, and abortion and things because it is so blatantly righteous to do that and it doesn't matter what they say yeah. it doesn't matter if they what you know i'm right yeah you know it's just not it's just and we do that not because we're conservative or republican or something like that we do that because it is true, true and because it's yeah, right it's and because true. it's good and because it's according to what god has said that's right and that right. can't be changed you absolutely can, i mean you can have all the arguments in the world <clears throat> you're still wrong yep yep yep, yep. But we do need to understand that the political realm is not the way the kingdom of God advances. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't be involved in political things because we are dealing with issues of good and evil, right and wrong. But we do need to not, not mistake that the kingdom of God does not advance through political means. The kingdom of God advances through individual transformation in the heart, right? Because you can have a nation that institutes all of the values and laws that are biblical and still have people with wicked, corrupt hearts. Okay? So, and again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to have those laws. I think a nation will thrive if it's oriented around the truths of the Bible. But this is not, the kingdom of God is not first and foremost a political movement. Well, you got the Israelite nation of Israel who had all the laws, they had everything there, and they were still a wicked nation. That's a great example. So, yep. you know, yep. so, so we had, we, the, the message is, you're right, we need to, one by one, you need to decide, we pray that the hospital yep. change. Yep, yep. amen. Because they, this will be God again and again. Yes. And, and I, I'm sure I've said this before, but the, the, the phrase that people say is you can't legislate morality. You can't. You absolutely can legislate morality. That's what laws are. But what you cannot do is legislate transformation. You cannot legislate heart change. And that's what people need to do what pleases God. All right. So verse 26, we have this scene where Herod's uh, half well, Herod's like adopted daughter, the daughter of Herod's wife, Herodias, dances for him. Now you can see on your handout, you've actually got Herodias's three daughters name or three children name. Agrippa actually would be a, a male. So this is probably Bernice or Drusilla. I don't know, but she dances, she pleases Herod. Herod says, ask me whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And, uh, she goes to her mother. Her mother says, I hate that John guy. Bring me his head on a silver platter. And Herod, even though he doesn't like the idea, he's spoken this promise in front of his court. And so he doesn't want to lose face. And so he is, you know, quote unquote, forced to deliver what he said he would give. And I think this just shows the callous nature of politicians and kings. 
right? What do they care about? Themselves. Themselves, right? They, they care about their own, um, you know, image. Uh, they care about their power. And they'll use human life in whatever way advances their power and their status. I mean, that's not every single one of them, but it's the majority of them. Dance, she danced in front of him and all of his people. Right. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. How he turned around and gave her half his kingdom. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's kind of stuck. Um, and yet, for all the political effort to get more power, maintain an image, you know, boss people around, become wealthy. Acts chapter 12, 23 through 24, not the same Herod, but I love this scene. It's actually, uh, we're dealing then with um, Herod Agrippa. And uh, that would be Agrippa 1 on your, your list there. Um, Herod Agrippa, uh, you know, comes out to this crowd and says, look at me, I'm basically a god among men. And the people saying, yes, god among men, god among men. And he he just immediately drops dead. Probably some kind of heart attack. They say he died of worms. They, they suffered from worms? Yeah. I had worms when I was in Sierra Leone last time. If he died of that, I'm telling you, then he suffered. He didn't, I don't know if he died immediately, but if, if he suffered from that, that was, that was painful. It was awful. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. That's what he died of. Yeah, and so the point is that, that dynasties, dynasties will rise and fall, but the word of God will continue to increase and multiply. And no, no power of man can stop that. It's just that easy for God to raise up kings and tear them down. Yep. Romans, Romans 9 talks about that with um, And God watches his words to perform. Yeah. Yes. Amen. Okay. Uh, I'm a hot mess. Where did my phone go? 9.30. We could go for like 10 more minutes. You guys okay with that? Yeah. All right. So Jesus feeds the 5,000. Picking up in verse 30. Or any last comments on the scene with John the Baptist and Herod? Okay. So Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. I would love to get through this portion today. Let's see if we can pull it off. Um, okay, so Jesus had already sent out the 12. Then we got that scene with John the Baptist and Herod. And now the 12 are coming back to kind of give him a report about the ministry they did. And verse 30, uh, presumably the apostles did exactly what Jesus sent them out to do. They returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Uh, Jesus doesn't rebuke them for messing that up which we can assume then if we were to look back at verses 12 through 13, they proclaimed that people should repent. They cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many people who were sick and healed them. So that's the work that they were doing. Um, powerful, powerful work. And I think they're, 
they're excited to tell Jesus about what they did uh, because they are they've seen the power of God now work through not only Jesus but work through them in really incredible ways okay so this is the first of two feeding miracles that that Luke is or that uh, Mark is going to record we've got this one here and then if you want to look a little bit further ahead into chapter 8 Jesus feeds 4,000 people in that situation but before we get to the feeding, first, Jesus uh, recognizes that his apostles are tired after doing this ministry. And um, this is the nature of ministry. Yep. Uh, you know, I do this full time. I get paid for it. I'm blessed and honored to have that opportunity. I love it. But it is at times exhausting. The needs of people can be incredibly demanding. And uh, preaching is exhausting. Um, I mean, ask, ask somebody who does it on a regular basis. A lot of pastors, Sunday afternoon, Monday, are just wiped out. I, I usually am. The schedule ebbs and flows, but a lot of times it can be really busy. Lots of meetings and, I mean, just even just being on the floor on your face praying for your church is an exhausting thing. It's, it's, uh, it's intense. And I'm not saying that this is strictly the case for people who do this full time, but um, ministry itself is it's both life giving because it's eternally significant, but it's also draining. It takes a lot out of you. And the Bible acknowledges that. Um, you know, Paul talks about his experience with this. Um, you know, there, there's, there's quite a bit about it. But uh, we're told in this particular case, that these guys were so busy. Look at verse uh, 31 here. Rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. Um, I've not had too many seasons where it's gotten that busy. I've had a couple of them, but not too many. No leisure even to eat. And there's a sad reason why a lot of pastors burn out and why a lot of people in ministry end up exhausted and, and overworked. Um, and I think there's two reasons. The first one is because they fail in their rhythm of work to continue to feast themselves on the one who can sustain them. Right? I can admit to you guys that it is often easy to be like, well, you know, I spent three hours preparing for adult Sunday school and I spent another 15 hours preparing to preach and I led Tuesday morning men's Bible study uh, through 1 Timothy. And so I've spent like almost 20 hours this week in God's Word. But I wasn't doing any of that for me, right? That doesn't mean I wasn't edified by it. I was blessed by that. But I was doing that in order to give, right? And so... I need to carve out my own time to go away to be with Jesus in a desolate place, if you will, to just be with him. And if I don't do that and I'm only ever doing this because it's my job and I need to give it to other people, then of course I'm going to end up exhausted uh, because I'm not feeding on the one who can meet my needs. And I think the second reason, and this is why I love this passage in particular, is because um, I'm human. Pastors are human. People who do full-time ministry are human. And I think we can have this savior complex where rather than point people to Jesus, we want to be Jesus. Right? We actually want to be the one who meets the needs of people. But that's not how this is supposed to be. We are simply supposed to be a conduit through which people can have their needs met, needs met by Jesus. Um, and so... I, I love this because look what happens. Jesus is like, I know you guys are exhausted. You're hungry. Let's go away to a desolate place and we'll just get some rest. And when they get to the desolate place, what do they find? Hordes of people waiting, right? And what does Jesus do? Does he say, get out there, guys, and go meet their needs? He has compassion on them, but he steps into action. Mm. Now, he's going to draw the disciples into it, and he's going to say, you guys feed them. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, when we are out of energy, Jesus 
steps into action. Does that make sense? Yep. yep. And actually a lot of times when we're doing ministry, we go way beyond what we should do and we end up exhausting ourselves in an unhealthy way because we're unwilling to say, Jesus, I, I don't have the capacity to do this. You need to do this. And he can and he will and he's ready, right? So he steps off the boat energized and pumped up and with all of the, the spiritual energy of God himself to meet people's needs. He has compassion on this crowd, right? Um, so I just love this picture. If you are ministering to people, which you should be doing because you're a Christian, this is not the work of a full-time pastor or church staff. We are all ministers of the gospel. And if you're ministering to people and you feel like you are out of energy, good. Go rest and let Jesus do the work that he needs to do. Don't think that he can't do it without you. That doesn't mean you're not important. You are. Jesus wants to partner with you. But he doesn't want you to do what only he can do. Does that make sense? Yes. So, um, you know, when Jesus went ashore, verse 34, he saw a great crowd. And he said, oh, crap, I'm too tired for this. <laughs> no. no, right? He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. So this is just a beautiful scene of Jesus' loving, enduring energy to meet the needs of people. Yeah, the under-shepherds will get <laughs> tired, but the great shepherd will never get tired. Right. <clears throat> so explain that to me because at the well late at the well remember chapter 4 John he was tired so Jesus expressed it he did everything he was human like us in all ways yeah so uh, tell me about he never gets tired but yet he was tired yeah so I believe what the Bible says when it says that he was tired but in his I would say in his humanity, he needed everything that we needed. He also needed food. He also needed sleep. He also needed to get alone with God in a desolate place. So I'm not denying that at all. Um, but but no human, no mere human could have endured the three years of ministry that Jesus endured. No way. It, it, it would have crushed them. That's because he had that connection with his father. And that's exactly right. Because he had an unlimited source of God's grace and provision and energy, food that you know nothing about is what he says to his disciples, right? So he had that. And that's why those in ministry need to also have that. You can do much more if you're plugged into that pipeline. But I think everybody eventually is gonna encounter a place where it's like, I don't have anything left for this, God. And I think God's response is, go rest. I, I got this, right? I'm not tired, I, I don't sleep, I don't eat. I don't need anything. I can keep going, right? Does that kind of make sense? Is that helpful? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Okay, so Jesus gives uh, his disciples a test, and he says, you feed these people. And they're like, dude, you are crazy. Even though they just saw him do incredible things through them as they went out, Jesus wasn't there. They're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're proclaiming the gospel, seeing people brought into the kingdom of God. And yet they look at him when he says, you go feed them. And they're like, you are out of your mind. Okay, so just to give you an idea here, 200 denarii, you probably have a little footnote that tells you a denarii is a single day's wage. So that's 200 days wages. In today's money, I, I calculated this out. If you were making a salary of like $60,000 a year, which might be a little on the high side, but that's probably pretty close to national average. Um, this would be $45,000. Open up the money purse. Here's 45,000 cash. You guys go order them some pizzas, right? And this is not merely 5,000 people, friends. This is 5,000 men. So you might be looking more like 10,000, maybe 20,000. Right? Children, right? So if you've got a married couple and one kid, represented here for every man you've got 15,000 people okay so 10,000 people today at seven dollars per person to feed them which I think is on the cheaper side I mean you go to Chipotle 
You're going to spend 12 bucks for a burrito, right? And you go to McDonald's, you're going to spend eight bucks for a meal, okay? But that's $70,000. So it's reasonable that these disciples are like, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? Okay. Now, this is where I want to, I want to conclude. And you're, I'm going to let you guys out be late because this is worth it, okay? And I don't want to wait till next week. I want you to understand that this is really important to understand. This is not some magic trick that Jesus does here. This is an incredible thing that takes place in this moment. The scientific world is governed by laws that are built into the very fabric of the universe. These are not laws that people have made. These are laws that we have come to discover and understand as we have done experiments and observations. Physics is governed by five laws in particular that can be broken down into roughly 15 laws in totality, okay? So you can almost explain the entire cosmos in these 15 laws. Now, we've got some problems when we get into subatomic physics because they operate in a totally different set of laws, but we won't go into that for now, okay? Quantum physics is a totally different thing. The third major law of physics, does anybody know what it is? Conservation of energy. conservation of mass and energy. Do you know what conservation of mass and energy states? Uh, nothing can be destroyed or or, or created. Created. Yeah. yeah. So what the conservation of mass and energy says is that you can transform mass, or you you can turn that that when when mass gets broken down, it creates energy. And when energy stops, it creates, or it, it, it moves to mass. I'm not saying this very well. Let me try again. You can neither make nor destroy any new material matter anywhere in the universe. So let's just pretend for a second the, the secular, humanistic, evolutionary view of the universe. Just pretend for a second. 50 billion years ago, when the universe created, began with the Big Bang, there were atoms. And all of those atoms are the exact same ones that exist today. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't believe that. I think the universe is like 15, maybe 20,000 years old, something like that. The point is, there have been no new atoms added to the universe since the universe began. And none have left, except this moment, I think or maybe some moments like this where God did something exceptional. Matter cannot be destroyed or made. And yet, what does Jesus do here? He I, I think what he does is he actually creates new atoms and molecules that form the bread and the fish that he feeds the people. Now, I can't prove that from the passage. Maybe it's possible that like turning water into wine, he takes the air atoms and molecules and transmutes them into bread and fish. That's possible. But either way, this is not some fancy magic trick where he's got a big deep bag back here and he's like, oh, fish, fish. He is literally from nothing creating more of something. He did the same at the moment of creation. He said and it was, it happened. Yes, and that's why I wanted to point out uh, Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1. Because this is the man, this is the person, this is the, the God who all material things came into being simply because he said, let it be. Yep. Right? And this is also shows that he is the creator. He is the creator. And from nothing he can create yep. something. And so if a scientist says to you, no atoms have ever been added to the universe since the creation of time, I might take them to this Bible passage and say, what about these? Yep. Where do these come from? Right? So I think actually there are more atoms in the universe today than there were at creation because I think Jesus made more. This is the kind of, ma of power this man has. In this moment, Jesus changes the fabric of the universe. He doesn't just feed 10,000 people. He literally changes the fabric of the universe. Right down to the very elements that make up the subatomic particles of the universe, Jesus has authority to say, let it be, and it is. Uh, to put this in just a little bit more perspective, and I'll end with this. In an effort to try and break the law of the conservation of mass and energy, uh, Europe built this thing called the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. Anybody know how much money they spent on it? Billion. 
five billion dollars. It's a particle accelerator, so they take an atom and they shoot it through this system and they collide it with other atoms, and they're trying to destroy matter. They've not succeeded in doing it yet, although they've produced some really interesting experiments. But five billion dollars to try and take one subatomic particle and destroy it, and they can't do it. And Jesus is like, fish. <laughs> Just like that. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are the master of all creation, and we thank you that Jesus has unlimited energy to love people and serve them. And I pray that we would just go to you, that we would look for all of our needs to be met in you. We thank you that you're sovereign and good and you love us. And we thank you that even through difficult things, uh, even persecution like John suffered, you are with us and you are good and you are taking care of us. And I pray that we would rest in that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.